What's going on, everybody? This is Black Men Sundays. I'm your host, Corey Sylvester Murray. This is a show about generational wealth, about finance, about business in general. And this is Black Men Sundays, the big show. Before we get to our special guest, my man, Eric, who do you have for the Black Men Sunday Spotlight? Black Spotlight history for today. I'm doing one because we have a guest who is in the broadcast news business or uh, television network. I want to bring attention to a guy by the name of Max Robinson, who was the first African-American to anchor a network news, which was ABC News World News Tonight. Thank you, Eric, for the Black Men Sunday's History Spotlight. Now it's time to introduce our guest. She's the current strategic advisor for Grand Media Group. She's retiring in June. For the last 10 years, she was the president and chief CEO of Grand Media Group. Before that, she was the president and GM of ABC7 in Chicago. That's WLS for all our Chicago listeners out there. And before that, she was the president and GM of WTV in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. Remember, we had a show where a brother from Raleigh, Durham has a You Break I Fix up there. Check that episode out. She was the 2020 Broadcast of the Year. Not even a month ago, she was inducted into the Broadcasting and Cable Hall of Fame. She's an innovator. She created the Live Well Network in 2009. You know, there's a bunch of online networks out now. She did this back then and she received an honorary doctorate for her community service. I know you're wondering how she did that. She raised funds for the Haitian earthquake effort. So welcome Emily Barr to Black Men Sundays. Thanks for joining us today. Emily Barr, how you doing? I'm doing great, Corey. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Definitely, definitely. And like I told you on Black Men Sundays, our demographic is black men 29 to about 55. Some are business owners. Some are um, have finances, but they don't, um, they're trying to basically, you know, get their life in gear as far as either owning a business, owning a home, some ownership in general. Um, so we'd like for you to touch on that as well. But before we go into that, let's, let's take you back, Emily, early in your career, sure. early in your career now, when you got your first job, how did you set your retirement up? First off, were you even thinking about retirement going in? So the first thing that happened was I was in college graduating and I needed to get a job because I came from a family that, okay, so I just want to take you back a little bit. My family, I grew up in uh, New England in, in Northern Massachusetts and my dad had a, a small uh, shoe factory, right? Where they made shoes. But in the, in the seventies, when I was in college or actually early seventies, before I got to college, my father's business went into chapter 11. So he went from being kind of what I'd call comfortably middle-class to having a lot of struggles. And I had to, uh, you know, come to that realization as a pretty young kid. So the first thing I did when I was 14 was I started working uh, after school, after high school, you know, like during the day. And the, the thing that I became acutely aware of was the need to save money. So it kind of got in, it got kind of drilled into my head because I was watching my dad go through, you know, they built a house that was a little too much for them. They had five kids. My parents had five kids. My mom was a teacher and my dad had this factory, but then the factory got into all kinds of trouble. So, so the first thing I learned how to do was to try to help out. So I got a job in a doctor's office. I looked at the newspaper in those days in the classifieds 
and I found a job for, it said, high school student wanted, right, to help out in the office. And I got a job in a doctor's office and I worked after school. I still remember, Corey, the paycheck I got every week was $25.20. And every single Friday, I made my mother drive me to the bank and I deposited that check into a savings account because, you know, I was too young to have a checking account. And I put the money in there and my mother actually tried to encourage me to use some of the money for myself, but I felt this need to save it. So I just kept putting the money in the savings account and I just never really used it. And all of a sudden, because of interest rates and because of saving it, I had quite a bit of money in the bank for a 14 year old. You know, I worked for like a year and a half in that office and I became kind of enamored <laughs> of saving money. So when I got out of college and I was looking for my first job, I worked in a TV station. Corey knows what this is. I was a, a, an editor in the news department and um, I wasn't making very much money back then. I think my salary was $11,000 a year or eleven five. It seemed like a lot at the time. So what I did was I made myself save something every month. Even if it was $25, it didn't really matter. I, I had a separate savings account and I put that money in the savings account every month. It was like a disciplined thing I made myself do. And that's how I started saving money. But to answer your question, did I understand retirement? No. I walked into that TV station the first day and they said to me, well, you're going to have a pension plan. And I said, uh, what's that? <laughs> I didn't know what a pension plan was. They said, well, it's something you'll use when you retire. And I thought, okay, I'm 22. I, I don't need to think about retirement, which is wrong. Actually, you should think about it when you're younger. Because for those companies that do offer a pension plan, you definitely want to try to participate if you can. Most companies today have 401k plans, which is essentially like a pension plan, but you have to be the one to put the money into it. And maybe the company matches a little bit of it. But every dollar you put in, if they match a little piece of it, that's going to grow over time. And what you don't want to do is you know, not participate because that's a great way to force you into saving money. Great. And let's dive right in. You know, I hear so many guys tell me uh, they have family members that are, you know, early 70s, 65, I would say around 63 to 70 age range. And they're saying, listen, they want to retire. Their body's not feeling the same as it did when they were younger, but they didn't have a 401k. They didn't put anything away. They just basically got the check, spent it, got the check, spent it. So what advice to you would you give for our young listeners out here? Like I said, we're basically 20, I'd say 29, but really 28 to about 55. So for our younger listeners on here that are working every day, that are just basically getting their check, spending it, getting it, spending it, what advice would you give to them coming in the game? So the first thing I would say is, it's a really simple rule of thumb, and it may seem hard to do, but you should always spend less than you make. So even if it's only by a few bucks, if you spend less than you make and you put away a little bit of money every week or every month, however you can do it, you will grow your money without even trying that hard. You just have to spend less than you make. Now, that's, that, that may seem like it's easy to do, but it's not because some people don't make a lot of money. And if you don't make a lot of money and you have a lot of bills, you got to start thinking about why do I have so many bills? What can I cut back on? And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I have a family member and I won't, <laughs> I won't to, to, to save him the embarrassment. I won't divulge, but 
I have a close family member who has always spent more than he has, right? His whole life. I mean, whatever he has, he spends more. And when I visit with him, I look at all the stuff he has. And I think you don't make that much money. And yet here you are, you have more streaming services than I do. You have, right? You have more stuff in your house than you need. And yet now this individual is not really able to retire because he keeps spending more than he has. So step one is spend less than you make. Even if it's by a dollar, it may sound like nothing, but you can keep training yourself to save a dollar one week, $10 the next week, then it becomes a hundred and then so on and so forth. So that would be my first step. Great. And just for everyone just joining us, we have Emily Barr. She's the current strategic advisor for Grant Media Group, formerly the CEO of Grant Media Group that oversees seven stations. They say out seven media hub, but we're right. going to say seven stations just to keep it clear. Hey, this is Commissioner Scott. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Quick question. You mentioned pension, right? In our generation, some of us still have pension. Some of us don't. For the younger people that are getting to the job market, graduating, and they may not have a pension plan available to their company, what are some supplementary ways they can prepare for their retirement in addition to just a Roth IRA or something like that? So that's a great question, Commissioner. And I, what I would say is um, a couple of things. First of all, if the company you work for has a 401k, which is, it sounds like something, well, gee, I have to take money out of my paycheck and put it in the 401k, that is forcing you to save money. And you should participate in that 401k because companies that offer them usually, not always, usually offer some sort of a match. So if you put in $100, the company might match 25 or 50 or whatever it might be. And it's really important that you take advantage of that because that money is a forced way for you to save. But if you don't, if you work for a company that's a startup and they don't have a 401k or anything like that, you can create your own you can save through what's called a Roth IRA or a regular IRA. You can put money in and you don't have to, it's not like some huge amount of money to start. You can start with 50 bucks, a hundred bucks, whatever it might be. But if you can make yourself move money over from your paycheck or your account or whatever to that account, to that 401k or that Roth IRA every month, you're gonna start to amass wealth whether you realize it or not. And the challenge is when you're running low on money and then you find out, oh, well, I can just borrow against my 401k. You definitely do not want to do that because every time you borrow against your own savings, you have to pay yourself back with interest, I might add, with interest. So you, you want to think of that money as off limits, just putting it aside for way down the road. And it's hard for a lot of people to think that way because, you know, it's like, well, I want my money now. But like I'm now where I'm at is I am just about to retire. As Corey knows, I'm I'm moving from CEO to I'm now a strategic advisor, which just is a basically a bridge for me to get to retirement. And, you know, I have worked really hard through my whole career to make sure I've saved money so that I not only do I have money for my husband and myself to live on it as we retire, but I want to be able to give my own children something when, you know, when my life's over, I want them to be able to get a little something. And that's how you build what's called generational wealth, which is really, really important. Um, because if your children can inherit something, they don't have, you don't have to give them everything because you want them to earn their own living too. But if they can inherit something from you, 
then they're starting off that much better as their lives begin. Cool. All right, thanks. Great Appreciate information. It. Anybody else have any questions? I would love to hear from some of the women on here. This is Black Men Sundays, but we have women listeners as well. I would love for you guys to engage with uh, Emily Barr. Let's go. Right, and I, Corey, I just want to say that in the in the chat, Miss um, Williams said that if you unplug the money, uh, which is the loans against your 401k, it can't continue to grow. You're absolutely right. You that money will not grow. So if you have you know, for argument's sake, $1,000 in a 401k and you take uh, $500 out of it to borrow it against it to spend on something, now you only grow the interest on the remaining 500. You don't get to grow your money. So it's really important that you don't do that. So Emily, what I want to talk about now is, you know, uh, these days when we talk about stocks, we talk about Robinhood, all the different investment companies, um, you know, a lot of people are saying, okay, instead of owning real estate, I can just invest after I pay my bills, I can invest the remainder of my check into the stock market. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm not a financial advisor, so I'm not going to tell you what you should and shouldn't do, but I will tell you this. The best thing you can do is invest in things you understand and that you believe in. That's kind of how you start the whole investment thing. So I'm not big on investing in stuff I don't understand. So to give you an example, I don't really fully understand cryptocurrency. And since I don't understand cryptocurrency, I don't personally invest in it because I don't, I don't, I got to invest in things I, that I get many years ago. I remember my brother, one of my brothers telling me that he was going to invest in like a paper company, which sounded so boring to me. Like, why are you investing in a paper company? And he had a really good argument for why he was investing, this is years ago, why he was investing in a paper company. And it made a lot of sense. He'd done his research. He kind of looked up what this company was responsible for. And it sounded boring, but it was a company that was probably going to continue to grow for a really long time. So my advice is when you go into the stock market, you have to understand you're doing a little bit of gambling. So you need to understand that the stock market can go up, but it can also go down. Generally speaking, the market tends to go up over time. But you got to be careful not to freak out when you put some money in and all of a sudden, you know, you made a thousand dollar investment and now all of a sudden your investment's worth seven hundred dollars. The thing most people want to do at that point is pull their money out and now they've lost three hundred dollars. So most people would say, be careful about that. Let it ride for a long time so that you're not, you know, you're smoothing out all the bumps. But again, because I'm not a financial advisor, I want to be careful not to tell you what stocks to invest in. That's really up to each individual on this podcast and, and out there to get good advice. Go to a financial advisor or planner if you know one, because they can help you with that. Make sure they're, it would be really good if we have any financial advisors on the phone, if the person you went to is what's called a fiduciary, which means that they have to have your best interests at heart. So they can't just you know, take your money and run with it. So you want to check out any financial advisors you might get. But I, I think what a lot of people do when they're new to the stock market is they invest in what's called mutual funds, which are groups of stocks that are put together in one fund. So that helps smooth out the ups and downs. Great information. And, you know, you talked about Roth IRA. And for everyone that wants information on that, just uh, check out the last episode. We talked about that extensively. Um, quick question for you. We talked about the stocks, but we're talking about alternate forms of investment. Like, do you have any recommendations for NFTs, crypto? Do you do any investing in those? I, okay. So I don't invest personally okay. in crypto or NFTs. 
because I don't fully understand them. The thing about NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens, is it makes no sense to me because I'm going to buy some digital um, imagery and the only way I can display it is on a screen and it's a picture of a picture or something like that and somebody decides it has value. I guess you own the underlying rights to it. To be very candid with you, I'd rather buy a nice piece of art <laughs> that somebody has done. And if that art later has value because the artist did well and suddenly their, their painting is worth more, I can enjoy it that way. So I know a lot of people are into NFTs and cryptocurrency. I have a younger brother who loves crypto and thinks it's the greatest thing. And, you know, it's bouncing all over the place right now. So I think if you have the stomach for a little bit of gambling, that, that might be your thing. But for me, I'm a very cautious investor and I like to invest in things that have more, more long-term growth. So that's my personal philosophy. And Robert said, the great Warren Buffett said, the only invest in what you understand, that's absolutely true. That is what Warren Buffett has said, which is why he stayed away from internet companies for a really long time because he didn't fully understand the internet. Now he's best friends with Bill Gates. So I guess he's more, he's probably invested in Microsoft now. I don't know, but maybe. Before she leaves, we can have a CEO in front of us. And I ask a business leadership CEO question. So just want to know, can I get that in? Yeah, Absolutely. Please. Okay. Well, the question is, as, as a CEO, I mean, people use that word, uh, they just toss it around, but there's a lot of responsibility in that, right? Yeah. So managing a large number of people, I don't know how many employees you were responsible for managing. How many were there? About 1,100. That's a lot of people, right? Yep. So how are you able to maintain your, uh, your the personable people approach, but still hold people accountable? Because sometimes there's a fine line with that, you know? Sometimes you got to keep people in check, but you don't want to, uh, you know, crush them too bad so they don't feel like they're part of the company anymore. So any, any advice on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think for anybody, whether you're running a company with uh, three employees or, or 100 employees, you need to, first of all, understand that you need to inherently have respect for the people who work for you. And you have to earn their respect. It is not assumed just because you get the title of president or CEO that everyone's going to respect you. In fact, it might even be the opposite. So the first thing I always tried to do was every time I visited one of our TV stations, I try to walk around, talk to people directly, um, listen to what their both their compliments and their concerns are, because sometimes they will take that opportunity to come up to you and tell you what they don't like about the way you know things are going. And what I also think is important is when you're running a company, you want to over-communicate, over-communicate what it is you're trying to do and what you're trying to accomplish so that everybody who works for you understands this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. This is how we're going to get there. This is, you know, it's, it's like a coach of a football or a baseball team. They have to make sure the whole team is playing, right? the way they want them to play. Otherwise, everybody's going to go off trying to, you know, win the game by themselves and it's going to be mayhem. So it's the same with a company. You just have to make sure that you're over communicating. It's something that particularly during the pandemic was really, really important because we had so many people working from home and we, you know, we all make assumptions that we, I'll give you an example. Like we would assume that, oh, everybody had a space to work at in their house like a writer or a reporter or an editor or whoever it might be, an accounting person. 
they all had some place they could work at their home. But what we discovered was a lot of people live in small apartments. They didn't have any place to work. So they were either working out of their bedroom. They were working out of uh, the living room with a coffee table, not even a desk. So we had to start thinking about, well, wait a minute, how do we make sure people like that have an appropriate place to work where they don't have the kids running around in the background, where they can focus, where they can have a computer with good Wi-Fi. We found some of our employees, for example, didn't have access to good Wi-Fi. So we had to help them with that. Um, so I think you got to really listen and over-communicate what you're trying to accomplish and respect the people who work for you. They will, they will return that respect. I believe that. They will return that respect if they understand and believe that you have their best interests at heart. Because most of us, and I certainly felt this way when I worked for others, before I became the head of this company, I had many jobs where I worked for other people. If somebody treated me with respect and felt that I was doing a good job and let me know, or, or if they told me I wasn't doing a good job, but explained to me why I wasn't and how I could get better, I respected them for that. What I didn't respect was when somebody told me one thing and then did another thing. And I think we've all been in that situation. We've all worked for people who have kind of been two-faced. So over-communicate to your employees, make sure they understand what, what you're looking for. And um, don't be afraid, if you're, the, if you're running the company, don't shy away from people who are uh, concerned or upset or have a complaint because they might be able to help you fix or improve on what it is you're trying to do. And you got to listen for that. You got to really listen hard to understand what's going on in your own company. Okay. Thanks for that. Uh, thanks for those gems. I appreciate it. No problem. Hi, Ms. Barr. Hello. So how are you? I'm well, thanks. I have a quick question for all of the ladies on the podcast. Um, like Corey said, um, being that the age range that we're in, there's a lot going on right now. Um, a lot of us are entrepreneurs. A lot of us are family oriented. We have you know, a regular nine to five. And so we're trying to kind of balance it all. Um, I guess my question to you is as a female CEO, how are you able to maintain a proper work-life balance and successfully satisfy the requirements um, to your children, to your husband, to the business, to everything else that's going on in your life? Because it sounds good, but how do you truly make it work so that everything comes out as it should without the extra stress? Like what's the true, um, I guess, what's the true niche to, to being able yeah. to do that successfully? So here's the thing. <laughs> nobody, I don't care who it is, nobody can do it properly 100% all the time. So the thing you have to remember is to give yourself a little grace, let yourself make some mistakes here and there. Um, as long as they're not, you know, big fatal mistakes, it's okay. Um, my younger daughter always likes to joke around about the time that I left her sitting on the curb in front of her school because I forgot to pick her up because, you know, we had a miscommunication between my husband and me. She, by the way, there was a teacher there. It wasn't like she was just sitting there by herself, you know, but she likes to joke with me about how, yeah, you just abandoned me on the curb. <laughs> you know, Look, sometimes what's hard about being a mom and being the working mom in a family is that there are certain things that tend to fall more on the mother than the father. And the example I would give, and I think if my husband were listening in, he'd say, he'd say that's true. Um, my husband was great. He participated fully. He loves to do all the cooking. He is really good about doing laundry. You know, he was a huge help to me, but he wasn't great at things like making the doctor's appointments and making sure the kids were 
there, there are school permission slips were signed and all that kind of stuff. And when I would be running around the country traveling for work, you know, stuff would inevitably come up. We were laughing just the other day because my daughter had to be in a play when she was like 14 and my husband was home with her. I was out of town. She needed her hair curled. Okay. You, you, I know you can understand this. He tried. Okay. He gave it a big old effort and it was a disaster. And she woke up the next morning because she had left, left the curlers in all night to try to get curly hair. And it just looked like the biggest mop I've ever seen in my life. And she took this, this funny, funny picture of herself in the mirror, just looking horrified because the hair was all messed up. And she sent it to me. And I have to say, I started laughing because it was really funny. And I, you know, she called me, she was in tears. What am I going to do? I don't want to fix this. I said, well, first you get in the shower and wash your hair again, because we're going to start all over because that's not curly hair. But I think, I think the truth is that um, you got to find the humor when you can. You got to give yourself a break when things go wrong. Um, you are going to miss a few things here and there. And you're going to have days when you just want to cry because nothing's going right. And, you know, you got a sick child and there's a deadline at work and somebody's mad at you at work and, you know, you're supposed to be here when you really need to be there. And you just, you can't, you know, you feel like Gumby, you got to be stretched in all these different directions. And that's when you're, when your partner has to be there to help you. And, it, and the other thing you have to be willing to understand is that your husband or spouse may not do it the way you would do it, but if they can get it done, then you just say thank you, right? So, you know, I, I used to get upset with my husband early on when the kids were little because he'd call me and say, well, I, you know, I just took them out for hot dogs. And I'd be like, they shouldn't be eating hot dogs, you know, and I'd get all over him. And then I'd think, well, he fed them. I mean, I can't, why am I getting upset about what they ate, right? I can't control everything. So I had to loosen up my control freak kind of approach and give my husband the credit he deserved to, you know, to, to, for helping with everything. But it's not just that he was helping, it's that we're partners. I think the key is when you go into a relationship with somebody and you're going to have children and you're both going to be working, you, it's a partnership. It isn't that he's helping you. It's that he's, he is as much a part of that raising those children as you are. And, um, and I think that's worth a lot of conversation before two working people try to have ch kids together. Teamwork makes the dream work. Absolutely. Thank you. I have one other question. Sure. Um, again, just kind of speaking for everyone, uh, all of the females, as we, some of us kind of uh, approach the entrepreneurial world and we're trying to build our, our empires, <laughs> what would be something that you see as a barrier or something that you experience as a barrier um, as a CEO in your industry as a female? Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm going to give you, I'm going to tell you something that I think is really important to take advantage of because this is a barrier, but it's also a huge opportunity. When I was coming up in this business, I was constantly, constantly underestimated. I would meet people uh, more, you know, both men and women, but more men would do this to me. The assumptions they would make about what I did for a living, what I was capable of doing were so low that frankly, I could usually uh, blow them away because they had no expectations I was capable. And in a way, even though that was bad that they didn't think I was 
all that good at anything. The truth is that being underestimated became my superpower. Because if you're going to underestimate me or if I'm going to underestimate you and think you're not capable, this gives you a huge opportunity if you're being entrepreneurial or if you're, you know, whatever, whatever, if you're working for a company, whatever, is to really prove that you're really, really good at what you do. And I don't know if it was because I, I happen to be kind of short. I'm only five foot two. And I think a lot of people used to think, well, who are you? Like you, you can't possibly be the CEO because CEOs have to, by definition, somebody decided they have to be tall or something. I don't know. But like people would always ask me questions over and over. Like I go to a meeting and they'd say, hey, I once had this happen to me. Can you introduce me to that lady who runs the television station? I said, yes, I can. That would be me. And then they said, no, 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 the, the woman who actually is in charge, like you just what you work in the newsroom, right? And they would just assume that I, I couldn't possibly be that person because I didn't look the part, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the stature. So I think being underestimated, even though it's a annoying and frustrating and can be insulting, it's also your superpower. So take the negative and turn it into a positive. Thank you. And that's a um, person of five foot one. I appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> and you know, Emily, I kind of like that segue of you working in the newsroom because I did a little research. I said, Emily was the news editor? Yeah. What? And then you said, when the doors open, don't ask why, run through it. That's right. Expound on that for us. Sure. So sometimes opportunities will come up at a weird time in a weird place, and it may not be the exact thing you thought, but if you take advantage of that opportunity, it can bring along other opportunities. So the, this is the story I'll tell you, because I think you'll all relate to this. So my very first job in TV was in news as an editor, but it was not the job that I applied for, nor was it the job I wanted. What happened was I was trying to become a photographer like Corey. And I went to a TV station in Minneapolis and I walked, I managed to talk my way into an interview uh, even though I had no experience, but I walked in there, talked my way in. And when I got there, the chief photographer was a big older guy. And he looked, took one look at me. This is again, where the height thing comes in. And he said to me, okay, sweetheart, why don't you pick up all that gear over there in the corner and run around the building a couple of times and let me know how that feels. Now, back in the day, and Corey will know this, the gear was very heavy and there was a lot of it. And by the way, no one person carried it. There was always a second person who carried some of it for you. So he was basically trying to break me and see if I could pick up what was probably a hundred pounds or more of gear. And, you know, and I gamely went to the corner and I started to put all the stuff on my shoulders and I grabbed the battery belts and I did all this stuff. And then he finally said, okay, put it all down. I was just kidding. I was just kidding. But he looked at me and he said, seriously, you're too small to be a photographer. You're going to get knocked over by all the other photographers. They're going to get in your way. You're not going to be able to get your camera up high enough. I mean, it was a very sexist uh, approach when you think about it, but he said he liked my attitude. So he said, I'm going to give you an opportunity to work in news as an editor, which is where you edit the videotape and the film back in the day. And I, I said, well, I don't really want to be an editor. He's like, well, that's where you're going to be. You're going to be an editor. So what I later learned from that was that door opened for me and I ran through that door. And then because I was an editor, I had another opportunity down the road to be a writer, producer. And I wouldn't have had that opportunity had I not taken that open 
opportunity. So while it wasn't the job I thought I was going for, I kind of pivoted really fast and I was able to, to uh, land in a position where everyone was helpful to me. When I got that editing job, what happened was I walked in, it was all men. I was the only female they'd ever had in editing. And in the first two or three weeks of the job, nobody really wanted to talk to me. Nobody wanted to help me. And then finally, a reporter, a female reporter came over to me and said, who are you and what are you supposed to be doing? And I said, well, I'm supposed to be learning how to edit, but you know, no one's really, she said, all right, here's my stuff. Go edit my story and, and then bring it to me. And I'm going to show you what I think you did well and what I think you didn't do well. That was a huge, huge plus to have somebody look at me and treat me that way. And I'll never forget that individual for doing that for me. Wow. How are you? Thank you, Ms. Barr, for attending the um, Black Men Sundays today. And I just have one quick question for you. Absolutely. Being a female in a leadership role, how did you actually use um, relationship to grow your career? I know that positive relationships matter. How did you use positive relationships to grow your career? Well, thanks for asking that. I would say, um, first of all, I'm a, by nature, I'm a people person and I'm really, uh, I like talking to people. I like hearing their personal stories. And what I learned very early on is that everybody wants to talk about their kids Everyone likes to talk about their kids. They like to talk about their family. So if you can get to know the people you're working with just a little bit and remember, you know, they've got a, a child or a son or, or, or I'm sorry, or a nephew or niece or whatever it might be, um, they really appreciate that you take the time to get to know them. And I always made it a point to try to remember everyone's names. Um, if I couldn't remember their name, I'd ask them very directly. I'm so sorry. I've just tell me your name again, that kind of thing. But I think to be personal and to uh, thank them for what it is they're doing um, and to acknowledge, you know, you want to celebrate all the successes. So when somebody does something well, it should be, it should be that they did a great job. Not, not I did a great job, but they did a great job. And if somebody makes a mistake, this is really important. If someone makes a mistake, either because they misunderstood what you asked or they just messed up and they made a mistake, you don't necessarily blame them. You might quietly tell them later, hey, this is why you messed up, but you never criticize publicly. So you compliment publicly, you criticize privately. And it's really, really important that if, if somebody makes a mistake and I take any responsibility at all, then I say, that was my fault. I made that mistake. Even, even when it wasn't really my fault, I would always do that to try to protect the people who work for me. Now, look, there's a point that comes where some people aren't going to make it, but you got to over, like I said at the beginning, you got to over communicate, got to make sure they fully understand what their job is. And if they're not doing well and they're continuing to mess up time and time again, you have to be very straight with them and tell them, you know, hey, this isn't going well and here's why. That's really hard for most bosses to do because they don't like confrontation. Most people don't want, you know, they, they'll just tell you, you're doing great, you're doing great, you're doing great. And the next thing you know, you're fired. That, that always makes people really upset. Um, so my rule of thumb is if you do have to go to the point of letting someone go because they're not doing a good job, they really should know. You know, they should have a pretty good inkling by the time that day comes that um, that might be the outcome, even if, even if it's really distasteful. So I don't know, I kind of veered off a little on that answer, but I hope that was, uh, hope that was somewhat helpful. Walk us through from your perspective 29 years old, 
you're making 45K, first time making anything over 20K, how should they set their um, savings and how should they set up um, their 401K and if the job offers a pension? I just really would love for you to touch on that. Sure. Well, the first thing I do is I would say, because um, I can remember doing this and it's funny you you bring up that, that amount of money because I remember when I made 40K and, I, and I, I did this, I made sure that I sat down and I wrote down what all my expenses were right down to everything. Like I, I looked at how much I was paying for my phone, how much I was paying for electricity and gas, how much I was paying for water, my rent, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I had a, a budget for myself and I literally just had a piece of paper and I just wrote it all down. Now, that at that time in my life, my job had a 401k, you know, like a savings plan and a 401k, you don't have to participate, but I think it's a really, really bad idea not to, even if it's putting a little bit, cause you don't have, you can put, you can put a small amount of money in a 401k and then you can change it and add more. You know, there's usually a limit of how much you can put in. But the thing to remember about a 401k is this, usually most companies have you, you have to be vested in the 401k. So usually four or five years. So you got to, if you're going to work somewhere and you think you're only going to be there a year, then you got to be careful because you might lose whatever money you put in there. But if you think you like the company and you really want to be there for a while, then you want to, you want, you're investing in that company and that company is in turn investing in you. So I think that's really, really important. But I think the best thing you can do is to sit down and create a little budget. There are actually budget programs online that are free that'll help you track, you know, everything you're spending money on. And, you know, when you first get that first job, you may think, well, this is great. I got all this money. I can just go do anything I want. Well, you can't, you can, but you want to make sure that, like I said earlier, you want to make sure you're always putting a little bit of money away. Now, if you work for yourself or you work for a, a small startup or an entrepreneurial company and they don't have 401ks, create your own by just parking some money in a savings account, even if it's just at the bank and it's a savings account and it's just a few bucks a week, you can do that. You'll never lose it if you do that. And, and that'll be your money for forever. Um, but, you know, I think it just goes back to, you know, spend less than you make. So it's really, really important. If you work for a company, any size company that has all these programs, you want to familiarize yourself with all your expenses, including your healthcare costs, right? Really important because healthcare can really catch you. You know, you, you can be going along and all of a sudden, God forbid you're in a car accident or you get sick or something happens. And all of a sudden you have bills that you didn't even know you were ever going to have. And it can be really pricey. So you want to make sure you understand your healthcare and you understand what kind of benefits you get from, from whatever company you, you are associated with, because usually they have health plans. So that's something you want to keep an eye on as well. Okay. And we're going to open the floor back up. Don't be shy. We have Emily Barr on here. Some more accolades, 2021 Giants of Broadcasting and Electronic Arts. Don't be shy. She was inducted into the Broadcasting Cable Hall of Fame. So don't be shy now. Go and get your questions out. Let's go. Hey, Ms. Boris, Commissioner Scott, again, you mentioned uh, the available tools to get, a, get your budget intact. Now, there's one that I gave all the NEOs interns. It's a, it's a budget template they have on Google Sheets. So that's yep. free. Uh, definitely use that one, interns, if you're online right now. But I do got a question, Ms. Bark. Uh, like Corey said, I got an organization called the National Engineering League. We try to get some internships 
uh, in engineering and get them prepared for careers in engineering. Also the parents, because sometimes the parents don't really understand what it takes to have uh, to get your kids prepared for these careers. But within, in, uh, within your field, what type of engineering jobs are there available to make that new newscast as successful as it is? Yeah, so so great question, Commissioner. And we have we have engineers who work for us uh, across every one of our TV stations, both in terms of the TV side and then on the digital side, you know, the the web and 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 mobile side. Um, we are always looking for really good engineering students, and we have trouble in our industry because most engineering schools push kids towards like Google and Facebook and companies like that, or you know, more. Uh, mechanical or chemical engineering and things like that, we would be more in the, I guess, the mechanical engineering side of things. But we're kind of old technology compared to, you know, what you might do at Google. But what we do is really, really important, right? We're the ones who are providing that newscast for you every single day. All, you know, we never miss, we never miss a newscast. It doesn't matter whether it's during COVID or whatever, we're, we're always there. And those engineers who work in a TV station are literally keeping us on the air. You know, they're making sure that the, the tower is operating properly, the transmitter is functioning properly, the camera equipment is functioning properly. You know, Corey's a great photographer, a great photojournalist, but I would venture to guess he's not somebody who can take the camera apart and really fix it um, because those cameras are pretty complicated now. So we have to have people who who work in that end of things. We do, just so you know, Graham Media Group pays all of its interns. So we don't, we don't have interns who work for free. We, our interns get paid and as they should. And I believe interns should be paid because if you're coming in as an intern to any business um, in this day and age, you should be paid so that you can at least have enough of an income to be able to live wherever you're, you know, you're interning. And then hopefully, uh, you learn enough on the job that you're able to maybe land a job, if not right in that one place, then maybe in another one. The one nice thing about our business is that if you work in one TV station and you're good, you do a good job, you can go to any TV station because they all run essentially the same way. So, um, but I think what's happened over the years is that engineering schools like the big ones, you know, they tend to focus the students more on bigger um, companies and they tend to forget that things like TV stations also require engineering. Okay, thanks for that answer. Yeah, no problem. A lot of mechanical engineering students we're working with. So we're going to start sending them your way, Ms. Please, Martin. please. They need, please, we, they need yeah. internships, but they're pretty bright. So appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. If you've got good engineering students, we want them. So gotcha. okay, that's great. Thanks. You Definitely. And while we're speaking on that, you know, um, like I said, uh, she oversees, she oversaw seven local television hubs. So we're talking about the internships and they're paid. Just tell us some of those. I mean, I know Orlando, Detroit, name a yep. few. Yeah. So we have TV stations and, uh, and websites and so forth in Detroit, uh, Orlando, Jacksonville, uh, um, Houston, San Antonio, Roanoke, Virginia. Um, that's where we're located. We have two stations in Jacksonville. So, um, you know, every one of them has internship opportunities. Uh, they typically are not only summer internships, but we have them during the school year. So for example, we have a lot of students from UCF in Florida, who um, University of Central Florida, we have uh, Jacksonville University, we have uh, students who 
in Detroit, there's all kinds of schools that we work with in the Detroit area. And you don't have to live in that area to get the internship. It's just sometimes people are more aware of it. But I would also say to not be selfish about this, if you're listening and you live in another part of the country and you're trying to find an internship in a TV station, every single city, large and small, has a TV station. And not just one, they have multiple. And many of them also pay for their interns. So this is a good time for students who are looking for a career to consider local television. We're not going anywhere. We are a very successful business. And we do very important work in this country, informing and celebrating our communities. So I think, um, I think if you're out there and you're interested in this field, by all means, keep looking into it. And Corey's a great resource for you. Definitely. I mean, I have like two promos out right now. So, you know, right. I, don't, I don't even talk much, but I talk on here and I talk a little bit at work. But, you know, most of my talking at work is to the reporter trying to figure out what, what we're working on for the day and things of that sort. I'm a broadcast uh, engineer. I work in the broadcast field as well as I started off in engineering. Um, and I'm just kind of piggybacking on what you were saying about what we do as far as with the technology side. I know a lot of things. I've been in the business, um, I would say almost going on 30 years. And a lot of things have changed uh with that i know with the first station i worked for my supervisor who was the operations manager at the time introduced me to the 401k i was like 20 some years old and i didn't know anything about investing um and he was saying like the 401k that's the one you need to get into you need to invest in this and at that time this is in the early 90s when right. um everything was great you know the economy was doing well gas was cheap and you know it was doing well so i followed his advice and got in it now this same supervisor who uh kind of coached me into getting into the 401k and, and teaching me how to read the the wall street journal and different things how to know what stocks to buy and when to sell and when to purchase he retired out of the station and he told me this when he get his million dollars in his in his portfolio he's out and he actually retired at the age of i think he was 50 years old um, as a millionaire Yep. Um, out of the uh, 401k. But again, that's when, like I say, the, 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 uh, the market was great. Um, economy was doing good. It's, it's okay right now. I mean, there's some, some little fluctuations with the Dow Jones um, fluctuating, but other than that, it's, it's, it's been great for him. I, I agree with you. And I, and I want to tell you all a quick story. I worked at a station in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, and there was a woman who worked there in like the accounting department, you know, uh, not a high level job, just she was one of the accounting clerks. She made the most money she ever made salary wise. This is a long time ago now. At that time was $29,000 a year. That was her highest salary. She retired as a millionaire plus because of the money she put away in her 401k. So when people tell you that's not possible, it's absolutely possible. Um, she was a saver. She saved her money. She, she just like you, she learned how to kind of look at the Wall Street Journal or look at, you know, on now you can just look online, you can do different things. Um, and she was very careful and very uh, cautious and she never took any money out of it until she was ready to retire. And she retired, I think in her early sixties. And I was blown away when I saw the example that she provided for all of us, because she wasn't a high paid, highly paid individual. She was just someone who, 
you know, put one foot in front of the other and kept saving her money. And the next thing you know, she was a millionaire as well. And that allowed her to retire in, uh, you know, in a, in a style that really allowed her to have a lovely long retirement. And that's, I th and then probably to leave a little bit of money to her, to her uh, children, which I think is something all of us would like to be able to do if we can, right? We, we don't want to leave our children saddled with debt. We want to hopefully help them. But it's all about the decisions you make uh, as you go along, you know, and uh, it's, it's, I'm not saying this is easy because it's not. It can be very, very challenging, especially if you have family members who are asking you for money or if they see that you've got a little money and they want you to give them some because they don't have any, because that's a whole nother conversation, Corey, that we could have about, you know, the demands that our family puts on us, our extended family. I have one more question. So kind of bouncing back to what Ms. Battle asked earlier about relationships and just how we um, intermingle with the people that we work with, also just in the community. Do you have any philanthropic organizations that you are part of that you would recommend? Yeah, so thank you for asking that because I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, I believe personally that it's really important to give back. I am very, very, very lucky and grateful that I have gotten to the place that I've gotten to. I learned as a kid from my mother that you give where you can and you help when you can, and then you give a little bit more if you can. So I have tried to support in my, in my life, um, I'm a big believer in education. So I support a number of educational uh, um, nonprofits that are important to me, um, you know, schools and, and uh, arts organizations and things like that, that I think are very important for our community. Um, and I, and I think it's really, really critical that if you're capable of doing that and helping someone else get a leg up, you know, it's going to come back to you in both the gratitude you might receive, not only from the organization, but from someone you might've helped in that organization. And you never know down the road what somebody might have benefited from just because you gave a little bit of money or time, because if you can't give money, you can give time. And I've done both. I've tried in every community I've lived in to get involved in the community because it's a good way for me to stay humble and to be understanding of what the needs of that community are. So when I lived in Baltimore, I was heavily involved with a, an organization that helped children who had um, developmental disabilities when, and, I, and I've been involved with food banks in multiple cities. Um, I was on the board of the Chicago Food Depository for many, many years. Really loved working with them because they really help people who are at their neediest and are hungry. Um, I'm still involved with a lot of organizations now uh, and with schools and that sort of thing. Uh, and I, I'm just, I just think you can't give back enough when you are doing well. So I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people that has a hard time saying no when someone asks me to help out, but I always feel really good about it. And I think that's the other thing about giving back is it, it gives me so much more than I give, you know? So if I can benefit because it makes me feel so good to be able to help someone else out. So I think it's really important. Whatever you're into, you should get involved in that to as much of a degree as you can. So if you believe in education, support educational opportunities. If you believe in, you know, if you're, if you want to be involved in organizations promoting civil rights, do it. If you want to, and, and, you know, I, for example, I, I 
I have given money for a long time to the American Civil Liberties Union because I believe in what they're doing. But not everybody would believe in that, but that's okay. That's what I believe in. Um, I've given, you know, I try to give money uh, regularly to certain organizations that I really support. And I think it's really, really been valuable for me to, and for my husband and my kids. Um, and oh, by the way, I want to talk about that for a second. My children have learned that every year at Christmas time, we would sit the kids down when they were little and we would say, okay, we're going to donate some money to some charities. You help me pick out what it is we're going to donate money to. And they would, they would research, even when they were young, they would do a little research, figure out where they wanted to give. And I'd give them a little bit of money so that they could turn that money over to somebody who needed it. And I think that's a good way to teach your children about philanthropy. Wow, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I feel like, uh, especially in our Black community, it's more so, okay, I have the money. Let me take care of mine. I don't care about anyone else outside of my family. But, you know, so I'm glad you mentioned that. And just FYI, everyone, we're going to do a Black Men's Sunday's turkey giveaway. We're going to align with the National Engineering League. And we're going to do some turkey giveaways. And you guys know I'm a big shoe guy. So we're going to have some shoe giveaways for the homeless as well. That's coming in the fall. I have a quick question. I want to just circle back to the conversation about generational wealth and how the expectation is that we leave, um, you know, an inheritance for our children's children. What platforms, Ms. Barr, can you recommend for, you know, diversifying your portfolio possibly even having some platforms where you can join investment groups, but what can you do to help create that generational wealth? So again, um, I think you just brought it up. If you want to get involved in an investment group, that's one way. I've never done this, but I've heard from a lot of people who do investment groups that it's a good way to um, spread out the need to do research and to really study what it is you're going to invest in. So, you know, the way an investment group would work is a group of people who, who have the same um, general philosophy, right, about, about life or whatever would get together and, you know, they might meet once a month or whatever, and they study the stock market and they pick the stocks they think are worth investing in. Some of these groups have done really well over the years. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's not that you you know, it's a tricky thing. You want to leave your children something. I personally believe you don't want to leave them so much that they don't do anything. So I think somebody once said, you give them enough that they can do something, but don't give them so much they can't do anything. Um, because, you know, we've seen stories, right, about about the poor little rich kids who, you know, who who become you know, they, they, they don't have any sense of self because they just got all their money from mom and dad. And uh, you know, I would never want to burden my children with that, <laughs> honestly. Um, so I think I think that, um, you know, some of the really, really, really wealthy people in this country, like Warren Buffett, have said they're going to give away, what, 99.9% .9 of their money to, to charity because they don't want to hand it off to their family. But for our, the rest of us, we want to be able to, you know, have uh, something to give to our families to say, hey, I worked my whole life. I worked hard. I amassed this much wealth, whatever it is, and now I want to give a little bit to you to help you have a leg up in the next generation. In terms of platforms, I don't, I don't really, I don't have any particular one that I would recommend because I think that's up to each individual to identify, you know, who who they want to work with and what they might want to do. But I would make sure that 
before you plunk your money down with anybody that you've done some research on that individual or that company and make sure they're really legit because the worst thing that can happen is you trust somebody with your money and then they they steal it from you and that unfortunately has happened so just make sure you're working with legitimate individuals or investors or whatever before you you know jump in and that's why sometimes investment groups are good because sometimes more more heads in the game are better than than one i just want to piggyback off of something um bar said about uh, philanthropy and you know a lot of times we give money we give scholarships and stuff like that but it's key you know to give time and show that you care sometimes you can speak life into some of these kids just by letting them know that hey i was there when you were at one time you can do it. Uh, I always share some of my personal experiences because other kids might be going through it, right? So I think it's important that people on your stature and uh, you know all of us just give out, go and volunteer somewhere and just kind of see if you can spark an interest in a career or something like that. Uh, you know, so with the National Engineering League, we're expanding out um, to Chicago. Uh, put the, that logo up there, Chicago Catholic. Make sure you see them come looking for you so we can build our, our team up there, all right? But Corey's handling doing a great job the Orlando franchise. Thanks again, Mr. Murray. But uh, it's important we give our time. So I'm glad you said that. No, I absolutely agree completely. And I and I cannot say enough. Look, if I see people who are out helping out, whether it's um, whether it's mentoring kids or it's you know helping out with with uh, sports or helping out with uh, food drives or whatever it might be. I think it's really really important, and it's a great way to teach your children how much they have. You know, there's nothing like taking your children to a food bank and showing them what it takes to get food into the hands of people who have no food for them to appreciate when they complain they only have seven boxes of cereal in their house, right? I don't have enough cereal choices because I only have seven boxes of cereal. And then you take them to a food bank and they realize, wow, you know, like I got it pretty good. So I think it's a, I think volunteering your time is absolutely almost more important than volunteering your, you know, than giving your money. It's nice to do both, but I absolutely believe in physically being there and being present and helping. I, I try, like, for example, I have a lot of students who call me for advice um, and uh, interns who call me for advice. I always, always take the calls, always do either uh, now, you know, Zoom calls or whatever, but I'll, I'll, I'll always always talk to a young person trying to trying to get started in in the TV career. So, what would be if if you know? Because I know sometimes you know it's hard to choose. Would you have a favorite philanthropic organization that you participate in, and why was that your favorite? Because I know sometimes it's driven by our passion or our experiences, but sometimes it's kind of also um, for me what what makes them stand out more so than other organizations within that same industry with that same uh, potential problem that's going on well it's a great question and um i think i probably would say that many years ago when i was living in baltimore working there i i don't remember why but i got involved with the maryland food bank and i really i did a lot of you know f volunteering so i would literally go help them box up food or unpack food or whatever, you know, donate, that kind of thing. I did that. I I have worked. So that led me to working with the Houston Food Bank, which led me to work with the Chicago Food Depository. So you can see I have kind of a, a natural affinity, <clears throat> excuse me, for working with food. Um, and because and I think it's such a, a basic human need. I've been giving 
money of late to World Central Kitchen. World Central Kitchen is uh, Jose Andres's company, well, it's a nonprofit that does a lot of work in war zones and they're over in Ukraine trying to feed people right now uh, as the war is raging there. So I think that's valuable. So I've been helping out at least with some money on that front, but also I work with the Chicago Food Bank uh, regularly as well. Um, so that for me has been a personal thing. And then the other thing for me has been anything related to education. I just think education can lift most of us up in ways that can have benefits for many, many decades to come. So when a young student is able to, you know, be accepted into a school, but they don't have the money to go to that school and there's a way to help them the way Commissioner Scott was talking about, I think that's really important. And I have, um, tried to help students wherever I can. Um, and I work, I'm on the board of my, my college, my alma mater, because I really believe in education. So those are the kinds of things I'm involved in. But there's, you know, other things, but those are the main things. So what's your take on real estate to establish generational wealth? Um, so generally speaking, I think owning a home can be great. Uh, as long as you understand exactly how much that mortgage is going to cost you every month and you have a plan for being able to pay it because the last thing you want to do is buy a home be house poor right where you have no no cash in your pocket because all your money's going to that house so you want to make sure you buy a house that you can afford um, some people who are really good at fixing up homes will buy a house that needs a little love and attention and they can get it for less money and then they work on it and they work on it and they work on it and they turn it into a beauty. I have a friend who's done that um, and they've done, a, they've done a magnificent job on their house and they didn't pay much for it at all. But they, you know, he really knew what he was doing when it came to building houses. But I do think generally speaking, if you can, you know, for me, buying a home has always been something I wanted to be able to do. And I was very fortunate to be able to do it when I was around. The first house I bought, I bought before I met my husband. So I did this before him and I was about 30 years old. So I was pretty young when I bought that first house. It was not anything fancy and it was not terribly expensive, but for me, it was a big deal to own my own home. And I took very good care of it for that reason. And generally speaking, homes do appreciate somewhat in value. They don't always. But I always look at it as I'm also living here and I'm getting some great enjoyment out of it. So there's value to that, too. Ms. Barr, can you talk a little bit about or maybe give some advice on our young listeners? If you're you know, in the process of transitioning out of the home with your parents, possibly the consideration of you know, purchasing a home versus moving out and renting. So I think what it depends on is, are you in a place where you think you're going to settle for a little bit? If you're in between, like, like if you went to school and you live with your parents and now you got a job and you're not sure if you're going to stay in that job or even in that city for a very long period of time, it would seem to me you might be better off renting because you, you know, you want to be careful because sometimes when you buy a house, the value of it might drop for a little bit before it goes up. So you want to just be mindful of that. On the other hand, owning a home helps you build credit and, um, and that's going to help you buy the next home, whatever that might be worth. So I have two kids in their young twenties right now who are, one's getting out of college. The other one is, um, is already out of school and they're both still in the rental phase of their lives because they're not hundred percent sure yet whether they're going to stay in the cities that they're in, they, they're just getting their careers going. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend they buy anything right now just because they're not ready for it. So it depends how old you are and kind of where, you're, where you are at with your job. 
Um, but if you if you have a job and you like the job and you're doing well in it and you've been in it for a year or two and it feels like a good career um, and you can afford to buy a place, then you can start looking and say, okay, now I'm going to buy my own place. Mm-hmm. Emily dropping them jewels. Go ahead, Commissioner Scott. I already see you unmuted. Got another quick one. We got a CEO here, so we got to ask these questions. Ms. Barr, I'm starting to run into students. They're engineering students, but they're really CEO-minded, right? I swear to God, we got a young Elon Musk, right? So <laughs> are you aware of any programs that are meant for potential CEOs? Because CEOs are special. They're responsible for a lot. They got to have great uh, business acumen and also people skills, right? But are you? do you know of any programs that help um, cultivate that CEO spirit and get them prepared to actually be in positions like that? You know, that's a really great question. And I don't know specifically. I think a lot of the fraternities and sororities have some mentoring programs that I would encourage people to look at. So if you were in a school and you were part of a fraternity, for example, there might be some mentoring programs through that. Um, I know that I've been, for example, part of a, a network in Chicago called the Chicago Network, which is a women's networking group across the city of Chicago. And there's, they do a lot of mentoring of young women who are just getting started in the workforce and who need some direction as to how do I get to be, I want to get to the C-suite, right? That's what they call it, the C-suite. And I want to get there. How do I get there? What, what kinds of moves do I need to make? what kinds of jobs, how do I dress, how do I approach things, you know, all those kinds of things. So I think there are a lot of those types of programs out there. You would probably know through the National Engineering Society, maybe there's some, you know, maybe there's some uh, engineering organizations like fraternal organizations that would help mentor young people as well. But I, I, think, um, I think there are a number of mentoring programs in each city. Uh, it's just, you got to try to figure out what are the best ones for me, you know, depending on where you are in your career? Okay, thanks. Your great information, Commissioner Scott. So Emily Barr, I'm about to wrap this baby up. I hope you enjoyed the Black Men's Sunday's experience. I loved it. I loved it. Good, good. So, you know, you're in Chicago. I'm coming to Chicago this summer. There's some listeners in Chicago or there's some listeners that'll be coming to Chicago. So we need to know we love to eat. I love to eat, even though I'm trying to lose 10 pounds off the stomach. That's why the, the shot's so tight. You know, I, 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 I totally get it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So Chicago cuisine, hook us up your top five spots. Let's go. Oh, my God. Five. OK. Um, OK. First of all, I live in Hyde Park in Chicago, which is a fantastic neighborhood. If you haven't heard of it, you all need to know that's where the Obamas live or lived, I should say, because they're not really there anymore. But we still claim them as our own. And um, and uh, there's a restaurant in Hyde Park called Virtue, which some of you may know of because it is the chef was on. uh, um, What's that show? You know, Top Chef, I guess. Um, He's been on Top Chef this season. Uh, Really great sort of uh, down home Southern cooking. Uh, right in the heart of Hyde Park, I would say it's one of my husband and I, we, it's our go-to place when we're at home and uh, we can walk there. So it's great. And they have really, really good food. So I would say check out Virtue, V-I-R-T-U. I think there's no E on the end of it. Virtue uh, is how they spell it. So that's one place I absolutely love. 
<laughs> yeah, now listen now, because you know, when I think of, I'm from New York, but when I think of Chicago, I think of the deep dish pies. Oh yeah. I think of the, the hot dogs with mayonnaise and stuff on them. Yeah, and I, I can't think, do and that. I think of that popcorn. So yeah. Oh, well, you got Garrett's popcorn, which is to me a little overrated, but okay, whatever. Um <laughs> you know what? I've lived in Chicago for 25 years and I can't eat the hot dog with the mayonnaise on it. I don't understand that thing at all. But um the deep dish pizza, you can't throw a ball in Chicago or a stick or whatever without hitting one. They're everywhere. Um, the big one in Chicago is Lou Malnati's. That's the big the big deep dish pizza place. But there's Pizzeria Uno, which, of course, is a chain now. And um, and there's a bunch of them to me because I grew up on the East Coast. Deep dish is just like too much sauce and too much bread. <laughs> Give me a New York slice anytime. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Right. Right. And then um, I'm just trying to think like what else, uh, you know, I mean, there's some, there's the, Chicago has steak restaurants everywhere. I mean, everywhere there's a steakhouse in Chicago. So you, it, Chicago used to be, you know, where the stockyards were and that's where all the, the, the meat was processed. So there's a very big tradition of, in Chicago of eating steak. So if you're into steak, again, you cannot go wrong. There's some very famous steakhouses. It'll set you back a little bit, but they're, they're everywhere in, in Chicago. And the, the other thing that's fun is just to go to any restaurant along the river downtown because uh, it's pretty. They've cleaned up the river. It's really beautiful now. And there's restaurants all along, you know, the river walk. And, um, and it's, it's just a good place to people watch and have a, have a little drink and a little something to eat. And you can't go wrong with the food. Thank you, Emily Barr, for pulling up on Black Men Sundays. I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. Like I tell all of our guest speakers, you could have been anywhere in the world, but you spent some time with us today. So thank you. Enjoy your work week and happy retirement. All right. Check it.